Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. A lot of breaking news, developing news in the Benghazi saga today. Some of it reminding us of uh, why we were so upset when President Obama was at the U.N., Weeks after he knew what happened in Benghazi, still talking about a video. In every culture, those who love freedom for themselves must ask themselves uh, how much they're willing to tolerate freedom for others. And that is what we saw play out in the last two weeks. As a crude and disgusting video sparked outrage throughout the Muslim world. Now, I have made it clear that the United States government had nothing to do with this video. And I believe its message must be rejected by all who respect our common humanity. It is an insult not only to Muslims, but to America as well. In the past 48 hours, we've gotten reports that the president was told at the time of the attack that it was, in fact, a terrorist attack and not have nothing to do with the video. And then a new report from a Senate committee, bipartisan Senate committee, saying that the attack could have been prevented. Here to discuss all this, the latest details, Steve Hayes with the Weekly Standard. Steve, thanks for your time. Hey, Michael, how are you? Which of the two stories is bigger, do you think? The the tidal wave of information showing that the White House knew long before the president gave that speech that what was, you know, what was pretty much happening, or the fact that a Democrat-led committee made the findings it did today? I think a little bit of both, uh, if that's not a cop-out. I think the fact that this comes from Diane Feinstein's committee and is really a harshly critical look at the, the role the State Department played, the fact that it ignored the security warnings, the uh, problems at the CIA, uh, the challenges from the Obama administration. It will certainly make people who have otherwise wanted to sort of cast aside the Benghazi story as a some sort of right-wing story. It makes it a lot harder for them to do that, uh, obviously. Now, there's a lot in this Democratic report that I don't agree with, but certainly on the main questions, was there involvement of al-Qaeda, uh, things of that nature. That This report, uh, I think, vindicates a lot of reporting that has been done by conservatives. What are a couple of the facts that, are, for honest-minded people, are now no longer in dispute, or facts that were bolstered by the leaks and then now by the full report? Well, I mean, if, if you look, for instance, at this question about the role of al-Qaeda, I mean, the administration obviously uh, I think went to great lengths to play down the role of al-Qaeda, whether we're talking about uh, the original fights over the talking points, whether we're talking about the administration's initial stories that focused so heavily on the video, whether we're talking more recently about this, uh, you know, the, the blockbuster New York Times story that said there was no al-Qaeda involvement, no role for al-Qaeda or any other international terrorists, and that everybody in the U.S. intelligence community agreed with that. Well, that's just not true, uh, and that's abundantly clear by reading this report. I mean, this report names four al-Qaeda-related groups who uh, had members participate in the attacks, including two formal al-Qaeda affiliates, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula's leader is, in effect, the number three in global al-Qaeda, in core al-Qaeda, as the administration wants to say. Uh, the al-Qaeda ties are, are clear, uh, and convincing, and this report, I think, demonstrates that. Steve, the uh, part that jumped out at me, two things. One is 
that this attack could have been prevented. And this has been one of those kind of frustrating parts of the debate from the beginning. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a dopey talk show host. You know, what do I know? I don't know foreign policy. But I wrote in my Boston, my Boston Herald column a week after the attack that it was a terrorist attack because of all the stuff that we saw before that, the 20 al-Qaeda incidents, you know, previously in Benghazi, the fact that there were reports of Bengh- that al-Qaeda elements were training in Benghazi. And, right. And so the, for the Senate... To the Senate committee to conclude this could have been prevented. Of course it could have been prevented. Is there going to be any backlash for the White House or for the State Department with this tidal wave of, once again, to use the same lame metaphor of evidence, hey, this is something bad might happen. Here comes 9-11, and they pat themselves on the back on 9-10 about how great, you know, how well prepared they are, and then we have this horrible terrorist attack. Yeah, I think we'll see some renewed scrutiny uh, of exactly what the White House did, and particularly what the State Department did. I mean, this report is pretty unsparing in its criticism of the State Department, although it seems to go out of its way to avoid naming Hillary Clinton too often. But it's unclearing of, uh, unsparing, at least, of the State Department bureaucracy and its handling of these security issues. And the other thing that comes out of this report is a, uh, I believe it was June 6, 2012, CIA assessment of Libya's uh, infiltration by al-Qaeda and the, the growing role that al-Qaeda and its affiliates were playing on the ground in Libya and the threats that that presented. Now, we had previously seen in August of 2012, the month before the Benghazi attacks, an unclassified assessment of Libya's uh, of al-Qaeda's growing role on the ground in Libya. But this shows that the CIA not only knew about this uh, dating back months, um, but had written a report specifically looking to address those threats posed by al-Qaeda in Libya, uh, you know, back in June of 2012. So as we were getting reporting about the threats to U.S. interests, U.S. facilities, U.S. persons in Libya, the CIA was raising alarms about this. And then there's another part of the story, Steve. It was in the U.S. Senate report about the fact that uh, there have been uh, no uh, reprisals by the U.S., but as the Washington Post wrote it, um, that the uh, there it was there was a disturbing pattern of 15 people supporting the investigation or otherwise helpful to the United States who have since been killed in Benghazi, and this tells me that as the bad guys do the math, you know who do we want to who are we more afraid of, uh, you know the yes. Obama administration or the local political forces here. We, we, uh, uh, President Obama, we're not worried about you. We will kill your friends and keep killing them because we're not. Af- we're just not afraid of you. And that raises broader implications beyond just a night in Benghazi. I think that's a, uh, a, a, an insight into why the Middle East is such a mess right now. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that was really one of the most stunning things to come out of this report was was that reporting that 15 people who had been supportive of the investigation have been killed. You know, the report goes out of its way to say, you know, they can't say definitively that they were, that those deaths came as a result of that cooperation. But, you know, one can draw their own conclusions about that. I think you're right about the message that sends. And we shouldn't be surprised about that. Remember, three weeks after the September 11th, 2012 attacks in Benghazi, the Washington Post had a reporter who sort of wandered through the U.S. <laughs> compound right. in Benghazi and picked up materials. And those materials, this reporter uh, told us at the time, included the names of people, Libyans, who had helped the United States and provided security for the compound, for the mission. So we shouldn't at all be surprised that there are Libyans who are now facing the wrath of al-Qaeda and its uh, sympathizers 
on the ground in Benghazi when we've been pretty sloppy. Our government has been pretty sloppy about this, um, you know, over the course of this entire sort of investigation, non-investigation. One other story that I think really makes that clear, there was one suspect in, in uh, these attacks named Aliani Harzi, uh, who was at one point captured and held in Tunisia. He, the U.S. government had brief access to him, only with a lawyer, I believe, with members of the Tunisian government present. And then he was, uh, over our objections, released. And at the time that he was released, Ansar al-Sharia Tunisia had taken pictures of the three FBI personnel wow. that the United States had on the ground in Tunisia and posted them on their Facebook page, as if to make them targets, as if to taunt the U.S. government. And I think, again, it goes to your point, which I think is a very important one, that they're not afraid of us. They, they are challenging us. They're in our face. And it's a problem. Uh, now, uh, it's not directly related, but we'd like to get your thoughts on the mess regarding Iran, where we can't, I can't figure out, is there in fact a deal, a no deal, a side deal? A, I heard the phrase I never heard before, a white paper deal and a no paper deal. I think a no paper deal, uh, uh, Steve, is what you have when you're dating a girl, but you're not as serious as she thinks you are, and then you go out of town for a while. I, am I, I, I've, never, I've never heard of these kind of non-existent, existent deals, so, so in, inform me. I mean, it certainly is surprising. I mean, I think you know, even reporters who are who might be generally sympathetic to the administration, particularly on this question of diplomacy with Iran, were a little bit taken aback uh, when you know they, they were in effect told, "You're not going to see th- this new sort of right. interim deal on the interim deal, the side deal on the interim deal. We're not going to actually share what the deal is." It's it's a pretty extraordinary thing. I think it would be. Um, you know, these things we're told by, by people who know a lot more about diplomacy than I do happen not as a routine matter, but, but you know, they're not totally out of the blue when you're talking about dealings with allies. But it's quite different when you're talking about somebody who is a, a proven foe, uh, who has proven again and again and again willing to lie in diplomatic talks to, to cheat the process. Um, you know, there's a long record of, of the Iranian regime sponsoring terrorist groups that have been killing Americans, including Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan, as recently as uh, the past several years. So the idea that we would have a no-paper deal or sort of a handshake deal with this Iranian regime suggests to me incredible naivete on the part of the Obama administration. Is the whole goal here to just keep somehow keep Iran from being an issue in the nearest election and then after that election hope again to some, you know what I'm saying, just how, how many times can we punt? I don't think it's that, uh, I don't think it's, it's that crass. Okay. In some ways, it makes it more problematic. I mean, you know, you're starting to read reports, the New York Times, I believe, had a story about this uh, the other day. I think it was the New York Times. Um, you know, people sort of posing this question, theoretically, at least for now, as to whether Iran might one day become an ally of the United States, and whether the Obama administration is choosing to look at at this, you know, interim deal with Iran as the first in a series of steps to turn around the relationship over the long term and make mm-hmm. Iran an ally. Again, I think you know, unspeakable naivete to believe that that's you know likely or even possible at this right. point, given what we've seen from the Iranian regime over the past several years. And one thing that's most interesting about this deal, you, you remember when the, the parties were first negotiating this deal, uh, or at least when we first heard that the parties were negotiating this deal, the administration made quite a point to say, to declare publicly, we are only talking about 
nukes here. We're only talking about the nuclear program. We have sort of sidelined everything else. And to my way of thinking, that is almost irresponsible because it means not taking into account the nature of the regime that you're doing this diplomacy with. I mean, it matters that the Iranian regime, you know, according to Mike Hayden, former CIA director, to the very highest level was sponsoring attacks on U.S. service men and women in Iraq and Afghanistan. It matters that that was approved at the no, very wait, Steve, you're saying That we, tells us something. You're, you're saying we don't need more allies who want to wipe Israel off the map? You're saying that's not, <laughs> that's not helpful? It, it is. You just it, Sometimes you see, you see these stories, you see this news. I mean, there was this tweet uh, that was from a, an account yesterday that is uh, alleged to have been the, the account of Hassan Rani, in which he says, in effect, we made the West, we made uh, the United States and its partners bow to our will right. by striking this agreement in Geneva. Now that tweet has subsequently been deleted, but you also have the Iranian foreign minister laying a wreath at the, the grave of Imad Mugnia, one of the world's most notorious terrorists you know, in the past 30 years. It's almost as if Iran isn't, isn't content to have uh, sort of gotten the better end of this deal to sort of have tricked us into making a deal with a with a, right. an unreliable partner, but wants to rub our faces in the fact that we've been burned. Steve, I got to correct you on one thing: getting Obama to bow, not that hard, really. I mean, just you can ask a lot of world <laughs> leaders. Steve Hayes of the Weekly Standard, thank you so much for updating us on the latest on Benghazi and Iran.